You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode There's No Normal Path for Starting a Company. We have an unusual episode for you today. Well, one thing is usual. Our guest is a remarkable entrepreneur and one whose name has become widely known recently as a sage of Silicon Valley. He's a serial entrepreneur and investor, the co-founder and principal of Initialized Capital, and the host of a very popular YouTube channel. He's also a veteran of Y Combinator. He's Gary Tan. But what's unusual is how I spoke with Gary. We recorded this episode of What I Know as a live interview on the social audio platform Clubhouse. We had a lot of live listeners, but cut the best parts of the interview for this episode. And I think you'll love it. Gary founded two companies of his own before working as a partner at the esteemed startup incubator Y Combinator and before founding his own investment firm, Initialized Capital. He has been in Silicon Valley since he was a kid, but his childhood wasn't so rosy. You know, actually, we I grew up the child of immigrants, so, uh, you know, they didn't speak English well. Um, they had trouble. You know, my father was an alcoholic. He had a difficulty holding down a job, so we actually moved around a lot, and then I'm really glad we ended up settling in um, the Bay Area because it was tech that um, really brought me out of being uh, at times food insecure. And, you know, I lived in one and two bedroom apartments in uh, Fremont, California. So, you know, really sort of the bedroom community, um, sort of the, it's right across the the way from Silicon Valley, really. And um, it was opening up the, you know, yellow pages to the internet section that got me my first job. Uh, I just cold called until I got a job making web pages in 1996. And um, that's what put me on wow. the path to write code and uh, go to Stanford and, you know, start companies. And, I, you know, I am thankful to this area. You know, it is the golden goose. You know, it, it's actually the place that has the most amount of social mobility, um, you know, among the highest social mobility in the world. And that, you know, that remains true. And um, I'm thankful of, you know, to tech, it has given me um, absolutely everything. So when did you learn to program? Were you in middle school? I mean, that sounds like early in high school when you were cold calling companies. Yeah. Um, what's funny is Jen is on here. And so I actually was uh, her intern. Um, she she was starting her career out um, at a company called Adjacency, which actually made the first Apple e-commerce store for Steve Jobs. And won the Golden Clio Award in 1998. I mean, these are all true pioneers of e-commerce and the World Wide Web. And um, that was where I learned Perl and PHP and um, you know how to make the first database-backed websites um, on the internet. And that was really just amazing for me, like at 16, 17, 18, um, having just the power to create and actually just deploy websites for some of the biggest brands out there. You know, I worked on this specialized mountain bike site for that design firm. And uh, as a bonus that summer, uh, they let me go through the website and pick any mountain bike in the website. <laughs> and I, I got a, you know, full suspension stump jumper 
uh, I still have it at my parents' home. <laughs> I probably will never get rid of it because it means a lot to me that um, I could sit down in front of a computer, write code, create something that, you know, a really big corporation that seemed like infinitely big to me as a 16 year old, you know, for me to be able to make their corporate presence, their website, uh, and then for me to be able to, you know, ride, ride their product, <laughs> like, you know, uh, down the, the hills of Coyote Hills, down the street from me. Um, I think that that was so powerful to see when I was that young. And so that's when I knew, uh, you know, and by 1998, 1999, it was sort of clear to me anyway, and a lot of us who were in tech back then that, you know, the internet is not a fad. It's going to be a really, really big thing. And then if anything, um, we underestimated the effect that it would have over the course of our lives. Yeah, sure. I love that a company that made a physical product, uh, bicycles, had had such an effect on you. And, you know, that's also it's an entrepreneur founded California company in itself, just not in I mean, it is in tech now, but it is, you know, not not classic what we think of as tech um, specialized. So you did you did make the decision then after some years working at big, small and large companies um, to to start your own venture. Um, and and how did you decide to get into the maybe challenging, I should say, media tech space? Yeah, I um, I guess I always loved photography. I almost became a, a, a editorial photographer actually for hip hop magazines. I had uh, just left um, Palantir and uh, actually was working for Jen as a designer at a startup called Reardon. And, um, and then in my spare time, I just started sort of following my, my passions. And, um, one of them was blogging and photography and, uh, my friends, Chinagawal, one of my friends from college, he, uh, started working on a Java app that would let you, um, easily send an email and have it post to your WordPress or Flickr. And, um, we just started working on it in the evenings and uh, got our friends to start using it. We quickly, we quickly realized it could not be um, just glue code. It had to be something that was itself a destination. So, you know, at that point, um, I found the domain Posterous and we were like, haha, that's kind of, an, you know, it's like pre-Posterous, but without the pre. And, um, you know, we, we launched that site, had a couple hundred friends of ours try it, and they started using it regularly. And uh, this was the era of the iPhone without the apps. And um, so what I didn't realize at the moment was we had found um, one of those really ripe seams in the market. You know, the apps didn't exist yet. It was hard to get photos off of your iPhone, yet the iPhone had this beautiful and incredible camera. And um, we sort of just ran through that seam in the market and built in, built that site into a top 200 website. Um, and then the funniest thing is, uh, Instagram came along and the second Instagram launched, uh, we more or less flatlined. And of course, um, you know, life is only life and startups are only understood, uh, you know, backwards <laughs> and like looking with perfect 2020 hindsight. Um, right. But in the moment we were in the fog of war. So we actually, you know, I thought we, at that moment, we were still trying to fight Tumblr, which was another, uh, blog platform that had grown very quickly and we were sort of chasing them. And so, you know, those are, some of the things that we try to help founders with today, because it's very, very easy to accept a, a narrative from the market or from other people 
Um, whereas first principles thinking would sort of cause us to ask five whys about, you know, why were people using us? And, you know, the second the variables going into the why people were using posturous changed, um, that was what we should have taken as signal instead of um, maybe what the tech bloggers were talking about or, you know, what just our uh, Silicon Valley, San Francisco tech friends were talking about. Like, you know, being first principles means being able to see what was really happening, not just what people were talking about. And uh, it's something that we try to do a lot of um, when we work with startups today at Initialized. It's something that kills startups all the time. And I know because it killed my startup. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to have that view from the outside, but it's almost impossible to have that view when you are literally the person building the company and you have so much to to deal with immediately regarding your employees, your own growth, your own customers. Um, and I'm curious from from the inside when you think back, um, were there were there any mistakes aside from not being able to see from the outside? Were there any mistakes that you made early on um, in in the simple act of growing the company? Oh gosh, so many. Hmm, where to start? <laughs> I oh, think just this pick is, again, one. Pick one. <laughs> this is something that I definitely, uh, you know, it comes up absolutely all the time, and now it's very clear to us. Um, there's really two phases to every startup. There's uh, catching lightning in a bottle, uh, and that's sort of pre-product market fit, and that is actually the thing that um, I enjoy, and you know, the team at Initialize Capital really enjoys the most. Like we're sort of built to help people at that stage. So team idea some demo product, uh, but you know, not a lot of traction yet. And what we're trying to do is create something that people really, really love and really, really need. And you know, the numbers we look for are not just top line usage, but also uh, long-term retention. Um, and retention matters a ton, whether you're a consumer or enterprise. And so that's something that uh, we love and we know well. And then the thing that um, killed us at Posturus, I think was, uh, and I take very personal responsibility for this, was I was sort of the software engineer, designer, like unicorn who wanted to do it all. And uh, while that is necessary to get over that first hump, um, you know, we solved that relatively quickly. Like we were growing 10x year on year from 2008 to 2009. But by 2000, end of 2009, what we needed to do was switch into um, hold on to that lightning mode, right? We were growing very fast, uh, but you know, I didn't start hiring great executives right at that moment. We raised a $4 million Series A from Redpoint. It was a great, you know, we had a great board. Satish Dharmaraj there, who's now an MD at Redpoint, was a great board member. But you know, uh, I was not smart enough as a founder to move over and start hiring the absolute best CTO, the absolute best chief product, the absolute best designer, you know, and uh, I wanted to spend the majority of my time coding and, you know, designing and actually, you know, continuing to operate as if we were, uh, you know, two to four person, you know, tiny outfit. And uh, that that did actually really hurt us because when the, the market shifted, we didn't have enough brain power to like even try to take advantage of um, that shift, right? To to switch completely to uh, mobile apps, for instance. And, um, you know, I, I blame myself, right? And then it's funny because now I can see that play out um, in almost every pre-product market fit startup that makes it to product market fit. Um, and now I can go in very strong and say, hey guys, this killed my startup. Don't let this happen to you. And, um, you know, if you talk to a lot of investors, that's actually a very critical moment 
because um, at the end of the day, it's actually very, very hard for founders to make that call. Like, and and this this is precisely the moment where what got you here will not get you to where you want to go. And uh, for first timers, especially, it's very, very jarring. And um, the funny thing that now I see absolutely all the time is that is the role of the founder. You get you basically pound your head into a wall until you until you get very, very good at you know thing X, and then guess what? You graduated. <laughs> you don't get to do X anymore. You got to hand it off. You need to hire someone and hand that off. And you got to do problem Y. And it's going to be as hard or harder than problem X. And then, you know, basically the whole career of being a founder and especially the CEO at a startup um, is actually that. Just running from one problem to another problem in quick succession forever. <laughs> it like never gets easier. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah, this, this, it's it's a thing I see all the time in companies that, that are scaling very fast. You're growing 10x in a year, but not one human's experience and education can grow by 10x in a year, right? You need to continue to hire to fill that growth, right? Um, it's fascinating and, and super challenging. Um, I, I want to I want to say, though, you did manage to sell Posturus to Twitter. Uh, can you tell me quickly how that happened and what happened next? Oh, well, you know, the truth is my co-founder did it and all credit goes to him and frankly, Chris Saka, who ah, was the investor. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, this is the other thing that frankly, um, I've worked very, very deeply on since. But, um, you know, earlier in the this, I mentioned that I had a pretty tough childhood, actually. And, um, you know, throughout my 20s, I didn't really address that. You know, I went into it thinking I'm normal, I'm fine, I have nothing to work on, on the internal work side. But where it came out was actually my relationship with my co-founder, Sachin Agarwal. And it came out, you know, elsewhere in other parts of my career too. And um, I had to address that, you know, and what's cool is, you know, I just turned 40 this past year and... Um, you know, I am working, I'm doing the deep work. You know, I have uh, weekly, you know, both therapy and coaching and I'm making leaps and bounds, um, particularly around, you know, conflict avoidance. Um, and that was just things from my childhood that were uh, unaddressed. And so the truth is, I wish the second I had, you know, a solid job at Microsoft when I was 22, I needed to run out and like find the best therapist I could because there are so many things that ended up hurting me. And, uh, you know, conflict avoidance with my co-founder throughout like 2009, 2010, uh, that's what precipitated me burning out. And, you know, I was lucky to find myself at Y Combinator at, in 2011, um, initially just to help people out. You know, I think uh, Paul Graham and Harj Tagger and um, Jessica Livingston, they said, well, Posturus was designed extremely well and you can help our founders. Why don't you come? And they paid us, I think they paid me like $30,000 a year to work like 10 hours a week or something <laughs> just to like come and help out. Um, and for me, that was a true uh, perfect timing, like right place, right time thing, because YC itself was about to go from um, this sort of fringe thing that a lot of people except really good engineers and designers knew about to suddenly all of Silicon Valley and the whole like world of capital uh, and venture capital, knowing about it, that more or less happened in 2011 when I joined, um, because I joined when uh, Yuri Milner and Ron Conway came and said, we're going to give every single YC company $150,000. 
And we're going to do it because we know every single batch will have uh, at least one, if not several billion dollar startups. And then what's funny now is even that prediction was um, way undershot, you know, just as in the, in the mid nineties, you know, we all thought that the internet was going to be big, but I think we underestimated how big it would be um, in 2000, you know, 2010, I think we all knew that YC would be big, but you know, today we're looking at, you know, three, $400 billion worth of startups exist. And so it wasn't just that there would be a billion dollar company, there would be several, you know, companies worth $10 billion or more, whether it's Instacart or Coinbase, um, or several companies worth, you know, $100 billion or more um, with Airbnb. And I think that 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 is like the coolest thing about tech. So I don't know, long story short, I got very lucky uh, to be at the right place, right time. And to see, you know, to end up being able to work with thousands of companies actually, um, you know, during, through, through that community. When we come back, I'll talk with Gary about some of what he's learned about what's impossible to know when you're starting a startup and his new investment philosophy. Gary, we were just talking about Y Combinator. I'm curious, and this is kind of a big question because you were there um, for years, but what what is something that, you know, you would not have known uh, now in, in investing if you hadn't spent those years at Y Combinator talking to companies who were early stage, who were going through the incubator at the time um, and working with the other partners there? What's what's the biggest kind of takeaway from from that time for you or learning? Oh, man. I mean, I definitely learned it from YC and my mentors there. And then it has become sort of a very extreme, you know, almost dogma around initialized, I think, um, because it's something that is relatively controversial. Um, you know, I think for me, you know, the thing that actually kills startups is uh, when founders or especially their investors stop believing and, um I think that that is something that is very important for both investors and founders to really think about, you know, for founders, they should find things that they're willing to work like sort of 10 or 20 years on, or like sort of the rest of their life, because it's probably going to take that long. And, uh, you know, if you are just following the trend or doing like going through the motions, um, you know, the worst version of this is playing house. Right. Um, and, uh, to be frank, I sort of understand why that happens. Um, society more or less spits you out into it and you have to make your your own way. And the easiest, most, most default way to do that is to, you know, just sort of do what other people are doing. And so, you know, you go into high school, you take these classes, uh, you apply to college, college forces you into a major, your major sort of pushes you to, you know, work at get, try to get a job at like company X or company Y. And then, you know, then you're climbing the ladder. And then the thing that I really can't, you know, overstate really is, um, there's no net for starting a company and there is no normal path. There shouldn't be a normal path. The fundamental of trying to start a company is about trying to create something that has never existed before. And, uh, you know, there's nothing about modern society that prepares you to do something that has never happened before. And so that's why starting a company is a lot more like art than science. It is, you know, you, you can't be a truly great artist or a truly great musician just by being derivative. 
um, you do have to be truly original and you also have to be so dedicated to it that you're going to do it even if nobody shows up, uh, nobody even cares. Right. And, um, and that's how true like artistry is created. And, um, that is anathema and almost does not fit with finance. Like finance is about creating systems that are extremely, um, predictable. And so that's why early stage venture, it is very important to find investors who themselves, um, at the early stage are similar to, to you, the artist, right? Um, people who have created things, people who have, who understand, um, the pain of that process, and then who also will not abandon you, uh, the second it gets hard, it gets difficult, or that, you know, the founder needs to learn, you know, a few things. And um, I can, I don't want to put anyone specifically on blast, but the thing that I really can't stand is when seed investors and early stage investors in particular say they will never seed extend. I think that's trash. Um, people mm. should, you know, if you, if you were investing in the right people, uh, you know, and the founders believe and you believe, then of course you should extend the seed, right? Um, if the thesis is still there, um, why would you throw that company out? And so when you look at loss rates in startups, you know, there's, it's easy to be sort of the sage and be the pessimist, but, um, and you know, there's a space for that for later stage. I think later stage, it's incredibly important to prepare people for that march to being a public company or a standalone business with no further capital in. But at the earliest stage, when you're talking about making something that has never existed before, these things take like five years, eight years, right? And um, if you're a seed investor who's abandoning companies at like 12 to 18 months, like their lottery tickets, and there are people out there who do it routinely, they're very famous ones too. Um, I can't abide by it. I think it's disgusting. And, uh, you know, I, and we, we see it all the time. And so that's the thing that I feel very strongly about from my days at YC and that we are like sort of playing out today um, as, you know, seed investor of record uh, at Initialized, you know, we, and, and the thing is, it's long-term greedy to do it that way, because that is the nature of creating something that has never existed before. You need people who believe in you, who have deep pockets, who actually have long duration. And I think that's the thing that I learned at YC that, um, you know, a lot of people coming up, even as angel investors, but certainly working at other VC firms, uh, you're just never going to learn that because the culture um, of other firms is very, very focused on, you know, sort of capital preservation, finance, zero sum mindset. And uh, what I think is ex extra necessary, what powers YC, uh, which also powers us, is extreme growth mindset. And that, that's the way it needs to be done. Was that some of what motivated you to start Initialized Capital? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, to be frank, like we saw investors routinely kill startups because A, they are low conviction and treat founders and companies like um, lottery tickets to be discarded. The second it's, you know, it's not clear that this is going to be a billion dollar company within like 12 months. Um, and I just got mad at that and just like made me sick to my stomach. And um, on the flip side, we had learned, you know, from people like Alex Bangash at TI Platform, who actually put us in the business, um, you know, he's an LP. And so he helped us learn how to raise institutional capital from limited partners. And that was like a whole other aspect to this that really blew my mind. Like, I wish I could tell you uh, how crazy it is to be an engineer your whole life, 
look at capital like it is um, the limiting reagent. And for the vast majority of people in the world, that is true. But, you know, to, to go into a place to realize suddenly that a quarter of all U.S. dollars were printed last year, that we are filling this economy with cheap capital. And yet there are people who are great engineers, who are great product people, who are great designers, who still are like living in this uh, scarcity driven mindset where there is not enough capital. That is the biggest travesty in the world. And that is the number one thing to fix. And that is what we intend to fix with Initialized. That's fantastic. And what's your what's your investing theory right now? Um, and what are the totally necessary things that a startup that pitches you needs to have um, needs to have to 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 get your time and and ostensibly your money as well? Yeah. So we're different than a lot of the other VCs in that um, we want a great demo and a complete team. So a team that has you know product engineering, sales, marketing. Um, you know, and true management, like people who can actually manage and hire great people. Um, we love complete teams and then we don't need traction, right? And that's very different. You know, we're not afraid of zero traction, um, but, you know, obviously every little bit helps. Um, and then what we really love is uh, that early stage. I mean, we've built the team around exactly that, actually helping with design, product, engineering, and marketing. And those are all things that are fundamentally pre-product market fit. Um, later stage, you actually need uh, HR and recruiting help. And, you know, those are things that we're adding. But if you look at sort of series A and later firms that are, you know, they, they really are openly focused on uh, post-product market fit. And uh, for us, like the early side, the early side is just so much more fun. You know, um, there are other VC firms out there that have uh, a set of companies that are as uh, as good as our, our startups. But I don't think there's a single one that has this volume of billion dollar startups that where we funded it um, when it was a few people just starting out. Right, right. That's amazing. Um, so, so Gary, Gary Tan, I am guessing that a lot of our listeners right now actually already know you, but in a totally different way than I did. Um, they may know you through some of your content creation and your online presence as an influential voice of Silicon Valley today. Some of your YouTube videos have hundreds of thousands of views and with titles like um, one decision cost me $200 million, uh, it, it makes sense. Um, but to me, you've always been a great designer and a great writer and a formidable founder. But tell me how you decided to turn the camera on yourself and and get on YouTube. Well, I met uh, Casey Neistat, who is a legend of YouTube and um, spent time around 368 in New York City. And I was just very impressed by what is sort of happening to human consciousness. And, you know, and what's funny is YouTube has been around for a decade. On the other hand, uh, I think it took, and this is the nature of media, I think it took 10 years for the medium to evolve to a point where, um, you know, Will Smith himself or Matthew McConaughey himself, like they, they have their own YouTube channels and they can reach directly out to their audience. And um, I think the thing that really made it for me was, uh, you know, I knew Casey, I loved his videos, um, but I saw the effect that uh, Casey being in the office had on our 22 year old interns um, who were in the office and they walked up to him like they were, they had been old friends. And then after watching like pr practically all of Casey's videos later, I realized I felt the same way with Casey, even though um, 
he was someone who I probably have spent less than an hour or two hours with ever. And um, there's something really special and I mean, extremely powerful about that. And uh, I guess like, you know, all desire is mimetic, as they say, as a, you know, as Rene Girard said, um, and we live in the most mimetic time ever. And so, and so um, this was a very direct way for me to have a relationship, not just with, you know, I mean, basically my goal is to have that type of relationship with millions of people who hopefully believe in technology, who are tech positive, who want to participate in the most growth mindset thing on the planet, which is creating new companies that solve problems. And, um, you know, for me as a VC, like, yes, I, I am also that and I can supply that capital. But um, watching what Paul Graham did to create Hacker News, to write his essays, and then to create Y Combinator, I realized that I could do something as powerful as that, um, you know, in 2020, 2021. And uh, so I took, you know, it, it took about two years to build up to about 100,000 subscribers. I think I hit 150,000 this morning. And, um, I, you know, I think the sky's the limit here. You know, I, I genuinely believe um, I'm getting these text messages and uh, Instagram messages and comments about basically what this, what these videos mean to them. And they're from all around the world. And uh, I realized that Silicon Valley, you know, it was just the first, the mindset of being able to create anything, um, but then also being able to point them at the specific skills to work on, the specific mindsets that were helpful for me and the founders that really succeed. I think that this can actually create a whole new generation of founders. And, um, you know, I get to do it uh, in 10 minute increments every single week, 50 times a year. And, uh, you know, over the course of 10 or 20 years, I, you know, I hope that this really inspires and helps create, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of businesses that go and solve problems and then sort of lift, our, lift humanity in a fundamental way. Um, but that's my hope, right? You know, I, yeah. we're going to try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, it's fascinating because it, it seems to me to be some, a sort of extension of the Silicon Valley mindset of uh, scaling yourself, right? Scaling your abilities by, by broadcasting, um, some of those those thoughts, but it's also a tremendous marketing tool for Initialized and other other work that you do. Um, so, yeah. so many different tools. Was it ever? Does it feel unnatural ever to turn the camera on yourself or to to share those things in a video form, which is just so much more intimate feeling than audio or or text? After about two years of doing it, you can just sort of look at the black mirror that is the camera lens in front of you, and um, I just visualize, you know. 10,000 of my closest friends, <laughs> which sounds completely wow, crazy. Wow, that's not easy. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I basically that's sort of what happens is like there are about 10,000 people today who watch every single video. And then I think that will grow over time. And then I genuinely hope that, um, you know, and the reason why I think this will help people is that if I can help people believe in themselves, um, then they can actually go and do this stuff. And I want it to be as big tent as possible. Like I think that prosperity is within reach for every person on this planet. Um, but they have to believe it first and then they have to go seek out the resources. And, um, and so I don't want it to be empty platitudes. I want it to be as concrete as possible. I want it to be something that can actually help people. And, um, and I don't know, I mean, 
new venture creation and solving those problems, you know, and code just happens to be one of many ways, right? It might be biochemistry, it might be physics, right? Um, there are so many other ways that, you know, science and technology can sort of build the future that we want. And um, I think that's the message that is missing these days out there. You know, it's, um, you're bombarded by zero sum messaging that says that, um, you know, everything's stacked against you and, you know, the system is totally rigged and do not even play. And I think that that's horribly damaging to our youth and it's horribly damaging to society to make people feel like they are disempowered, not welcome and not capable of, uh, you know, the thing that really powers what I think is like a great society, which is like human creativity and creation. Absolutely. Uh, Gary Tan, thank you so much for joining us today and for these thoughts. speaking with Gary, what I found so remarkable is that he's an investor with remarkable empathy for what founders of startup companies are going through. He's, of course, been down that road himself before, working for startups, founding two of his own, and advising a multitude of others. But he has a real zeal for helping founders navigate around pitfalls and simply do something that's never been done before. The way he puts it, school leads you into a career, a set path, unless you find yourself wanting to do something different, something no one else has thought of. And then if you start a company to fulfill your vision, there's no playbook at all. As Gary says, there's no normal path for starting a company. As the founders he advises try to find their path, he can at least offer them a view from beyond it. He also says, what kills startups is when people stop believing. People can be the founders not believing in their original mission, or it can be a matter of perception of investors, of customers, of partners, or of employees. And I think that's totally fascinating to consider. How much of the lifespan of a vision or of a company is just about perception? That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you liked what you heard, we have a really small favor to ask you. Please hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening so you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend interested in startups or entrepreneurship, please send them a link to our show. And if you have an idea for a founder you'd love to hear from, drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. Our producer, who, to the best of my knowledge, has not had a single decision cost him $200 million, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.